I can't tell you what a thrill it is to be here, to see many uh, friends here in the congregation, including, of course, Jerry and Cam, many, many others of you, and to see what's happening in this place, the community. God is building. God is amongst you. And uh, Scylla sends her love and is really sorry she couldn't be here this morning. I want to assure you we are still very happily married. Her absence is not a sign of distance between us. She's in Scotland at the moment looking after her 88-year-old mother and slightly making up for the time when we were away for a very long time. You may not know this, but um, today is Passion Sunday. So uh, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. The Sunday after, as you know, is Easter Day. But today is Passion Sunday. I'm very used to talking to couples about how to have a more passionate marriage, um, at least on the marriage course, the marriage preparation course. We're actually refilming both of those courses. But today, I want to talk about the passion of Jesus, the passion that took him to the cross for you and for me. And I want to use a reading from John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 19. I think if all the electrics are still working, it'll come up on the screen. John chapter 19 and verse 41, if you're following in a Bible. Oh yeah, there it is. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he'd said these things to her. I love this story of the risen, resurrected Jesus meeting Mary Magdalene, the very first person to see Jesus alive. I love the joy in the story. Just as, actually, Jerry, you were praying earlier that joy would be released. Here is joy released into Mary. I love the, the tenderness of the whole scene, the intimacy of it between Jesus and Mary and the love that there is. Uh, now, to grasp the significance of it, we need to understand a bit about Mary Magdalene. Actually, the truth is we don't know very much about her from the Bible, uh, but we do know two things. We know, number one, Jesus, in, in Luke and Mark's gospel, it said that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. There was something terrible that was going on in her life, and Jesus set her free. He transformed her life. The second thing we know about her is that she was from Magdala. That's why she's called Mary Magdalene. And Magdala was a town in Galilee, in Galilee just north of a... Roman garrison in Tiberias. And it is quite possible, indeed, quite probable that Mary at one time had been a prostitute to the Roman garrison. And as you can imagine, in an occupied country, a woman who has consorted like that with what is seen as the enemy is not the most popular person around. Now, before we get into that more, th there are two little aspects of the story that uh, sometimes puzzled people, and, and I don't know whether they puzzled you or not, but one question is, why didn't Mary recognize Jesus straight away after she'd, oh, she traveled with him, she knew him really, really well. But uh, as we've heard, when she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, she didn't realize that it was Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. Now, of course, part of the explanation is probably her grief and her tears. But the more important part of the explanation is she was not expecting to see him. Uh, last Tuesday, I was invited to Lambeth Palace at the invitation of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and his wife, Caroline. And uh, it, was, it was called a public affairs uh, reception. I think I was invited because of our connection with marriage and so on. And uh, uh, I, I have, uh, I'm not name dropping here, but uh, I've known Justin a very, very long time. Indeed, we were at university together, came to faith roughly at the same time together at university. We were both uh, members of the congregation at HTB together before either of us were ordained. Uh, Justin has gone on to higher things. I have stayed in exactly the same place <laughs> for 34 years, still officially just a curate. 
Well, when I was uh, going to Lambeth Palace on Tuesday, I was thinking to myself, what shall I wear? And I thought, well, it'll probably be a mixture of clergy and sort of other people who are not clergy. So I thought I'd wear my dog collar rather unusually. I very, very rarely wear a dog collar. But I popped it on, got to Lambeth Palace. When I got in, they gave us a name label, and I walked into the room. Very first person I see is Justin. Justin does a quick glance, sees the dog collar, and then starts to look at my name label to see who I am. He is so, he was so not expecting a dog collar, he didn't recognize me. He did also admit he'd only had three hours sleep the night before, so I sort of, you know, I, I understood uh, completely. Mary was not expecting to see Jesus alive. The second thing that has sometimes puzzled people is why Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. When just 10 verses later, he says to Thomas, go on, touch me, put your finger here, put your hand in my side. Now, what's clear from that little interchange between Jesus and Mary is that Mary is holding on to him. She's hugging him out of her joy, out of her excitement, out of her relief, and she does not want to let him go again. She doesn't want to lose him again. And while, well, this is what I think, while Jesus is helping Thomas to move from doubt to faith by touching him, physically touching him, Jesus is helping Mary to move from relying on physical touch, physical sight, to feeling his presence, feeling his love, feeling his embrace through his Holy Spirit when, he has, when he's out of sight, ascended back into heaven. Now, I, I don't know whether or not you were puzzled by those two little elements of the story, but uh, I wanted just to remove those in order to focus on one detail. And that is that it takes place in a garden. Uh, John is the only one who actually mentions that uh, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb. And the, the, the word that we translate garden, the Greek word, uh, means a, it, it's a large garden. It would be used for a plantation or used for an orchard and clearly large enough to have a gardener working in it. So if you've got a little sort of, you know, little garden, little garden, London size, just think a bit bigger for a moment, all right? Gardener working in it. Three times in the Bible, we read of a man and a woman alone in a garden. It won't take you long to get the first one. Adam and Eve in this garden that God has created for them. And it's in this garden that their relationship with God and their relationship with each other is spoiled. And they have this great sense of shame so that rather pathetic attempt to cover their shame. Uh, you read of them sewing fig leaves together. And, and significantly, it says earlier, they were naked and felt no shame. The second time you have a man 
and alone, a man and a woman alone in a garden, is in the Song of Songs. This love poem that comes right in the middle of the Bible has no, no reference to God at all. It's just about uh, a newly married couple, lover and beloved as they're called, enjoying each other, admiring every aspect of each other, loving each other, being drawn to each other, enjoying each other. And you read of this deep, joyful connection that there is between them. And significantly, in the Song of Songs, even though it's a highly erotic love song, uh, quite a lot of sort of imagery there, uh, they feel no shame. There is no sense of shame between them at all. And then this is the third one, the third time. A man and a woman alone in a garden. Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And here, with Jesus and Mary, Jesus has taken away all of her shame. He's gone to the cross for her, actually to take her shame on himself. You will know, I think, that on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked. Nakedness is particularly shameful in a, a Jewish context at the time. And Jesus takes her shame and gives her his forgiveness, his love, his acceptance. What has all this got to do with marriage, you may ask? And the answer is, it's got everything to do with it. Actually, the whole Bible is to do with marriage. After all, the Bible uh, starts and ends with a wedding. Uh, one of the most helpful books I've ever read is a little book by it's an American author, and it's called Let's Start With Jesus. And he, he's, a, he's a serious theologian. And uh, the man, the, the author, a man called Dennis Kimball, writes about how in the Bible there are three metaphors for our relationship with God. One metaphor is the familial one. That, that is, God is our father and we are his children. His children whom he loves, whom he dotes on, whom he watches and cares for. As you parents watch and care for your children, pouring your love into them and upon them. So that's the first metaphor, God as father. The second metaphor is the legal one. That, and by that, I mean God is king and we are his people. He's the king who will one day bring perfect justice. He will right every wrong. He's the king whom we worship, the king whom we follow, the king whose way we want to walk. And then the third metaphor is the nuptial one. God as bridegroom and us as his bride. And Dennis Kinlaw's point in this book is that the strongest and most significant of those three metaphors is the third one. God as bridegroom, us as his bride, the one whom he calls, whom he chooses. That's why that little book, the Song of Songs, is right in the middle of the Bible. It's God's love song to 
every one of us. It speaks of his passion for us as a bridegroom for uh, his bride. And this theme, this theme of marriage, the nuptial theme, is nowhere clearer than in John's Gospel. And that's why I chose that reading this morning. Actually, it runs all the way through John's Gospel. In it, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. John the Baptist calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. The first miracle that Jesus performs, the first sign of who he is, happens significantly at a wedding. And it's all pointing to the fact that the story, <laughs> the, the whole story, what everything is about is Jesus has come to seek his bride. And Mary, whom we might think the least likely person of all, <laughs> this former prostitute, a shameful figure, shameful of all shameful figures, she represents the bride of Christ. if she's included, so will we, every one of us, whatever's gone on in our past, whatever shame we have carried or are carrying, that will be common to every one of us. Nothing that we've done disqualifies us. Jesus has taken all of our shame. In the New Testament, I think you'll be aware of this. The writers of the New Testament uphold singleness and uphold marriage equally. Whether we're single or married, one isn't better than the other. In fact, Paul talks about how God uses both. He uses singleness, uses single people in a way, he says, speaking in itself, God is using him in a way that he couldn't be used if he was married. And God uses Married couples, they're, they're equal. And in the church, one of the things I love about a community like this is that we're made up of all different people. Some single, some married, some hurting from being widowed or from a broken marriage, some engaged, perhaps, or some dating. But it includes every one of us. We're all called to be part of the bride of Christ. And marriage is much more than romantic relationship, you know, as you see in Hollywood, where in Hollywood it tends just to be about the couple. It's just about what can we give and get from each other. It's just about us. It, it's much more than that in the Bible. It's much more than just a stable family, important though that is. Children fare best, of course, when, they're, when they have both their parents loving them and loving each other. Now, that's not to say there aren't amazing single parents doing an incredible job. And I know many children have been brought up by a single parent who are living wonderful, fulfilled lives. But children, on average, fare best when they're brought up by their parents in a loving marriage. But the importance of marriage in the Bible lies ultimately in God's passion for us. I think the most beautiful and profound 
writing about marriage that I've ever read was by the last Pope but one, Pope John Paul II. And uh, he was a priest in Poland uh, under the communists, actually at a time when the communists were trying to break the power of the church so that the state could be supreme. And in order to break the power of the church, they had to break the power of the family because, you know, that's where faith is supremely passed on. And in the 60s, during the sexual revolution, and the state were advocating free love rather than trying to build faithful marriages in the society. Of course, they changed their mind on that later. But Pope John Paul II, I remember one of the things that struck me was when he said the opposite of to love someone is to use them. To use them for our own purposes, our own ends. And he writes about marriage, he describes marriage as the total donation of self. Rather than using another person for our own ends, it is about the giving of ourselves to each other. Actually, exactly as a couple will say to each other in a wedding service, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And then the Pope cites those words of Jesus. And it's the words that Jerry used a little bit earlier in the service, where Jesus said, this is my body given for you. And he writes that as a married couple give themselves to each other in love, they are a sign. They're a sign of God's love for us. And every way, in every loving, faithful marriage, this is a sign that God has put on earth. One of the things I was most struck by actually reading Pope John Paul II is that he writes that the devil is out to destroy marriage, not just because he wants to destroy families, although certainly he does, not just because he wants to destroy society, although certainly he does, but because the devil wants to remove this sign of God's love from the earth. A sign that God has put everywhere in every age and in God's plan and design in every family so that every child would grow up seeing a reflection, a dim reflection of the love of God between their parents. Now, the Pope's not talking about perfect marriages. There is no perfect marriage. Every marriage, every family life is messy. There are struggles. There are difficulties. If it was only about perfect marriages, they would, this sign wouldn't exist. But this is a sign that God has given. And God's design and plan is to work through every marriage. No wonder there's a spiritual battle over marriage today. And when a married couple see their marriage as a sign of the gospel, as a sign of God's love in the way they love each other, a sign to their family, a sign in the church, a sign in the community, they start to see their marriage in a different light. And of course, the more loving our marriage, the more effective the sign. Christian marriage is about inviting Jesus 
to be at the heart of it, filling us with his love for each other, and then that love overflowing from us to those around us. And that's why we encourage every couple, including those couples with the best possible marriage, to come to do the marriage course. We encourage every engaged couple to do the marriage preparation course. That's why we're refilming these courses, actually at huge expense, in order that they might reach further. Because we long for this sign of the gospel, sign of God's love to be everywhere, in every community, every family. John said to her, Amen. He spoke her name. And it was at that moment when he spoke her name. Wouldn't you love to know exactly how Jesus said it? <laughs> it was at that moment when, when Mary recognized him. In Isaiah 43, it says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You're precious to my eyes and honored, and I love you. This is the covenant of love that God makes with us. Jesus, the bridegroom, is here. He's alive. He's with us right now, full of gentleness, just as he was with Mary in the garden, full of forgiveness. He keeps no record of our wrongs. Utterly faithful to all his promises. He will never let us down. And as in the garden with Mary, it wasn't a show of power. <laughs> it was a show of love. And that's how he comes to every single one of us. The passion of Jesus for you, for me. One day, read the Song of Songs. You won't understand it all. I don't know anybody that understands it all. But of God speaking to you of his love for you. Read again the story of Jesus and Mary in the garden. Of Jesus' calling you by name. He calls you his own. He's seeking his bride. May we stand. Let's take a moment, if we may, to come before Jesus, our risen Lord. And I'm going to ask that by his Holy Spirit, he will come to each one of us. And as Mary knew his presence, knew his love, knew the joy of again being joined to him. I want to pray that his spirit would come to each of us. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are the Lord who loves us so passionately. You went to the cross for each one of us. Thank you that you took all of our shame on yourself, Lord. Thank you that you rose again you're alive and here in our midst. And Lord, I pray you would pour out your Holy Spirit right now. Pray, Holy Spirit, come. Come, 
with every single person here. Come and speak of your forgiveness, Lord. Show yourself as our bridegroom. Come to seek us. You chose us before the foundation of the world that we should belong to you. Holy Spirit, would you speak right now? Open our hearts. We listen to the Lord. Listen to him. I think for some of you, he's simply saying those words to you. I love you. I love you. Others of you, I have forgiven you. I don't see your shame. You don't need to see it either. Thank you, Lord. And for some of you, I think he's coming in his love to heal a wound. A wound like Mary Magdalene was wounded by watching Jesus die on the cross, the man she loved die a brutal death. And Jesus in the garden began that healing process in her heart. And I believe Jesus is here healing hearts right now. with the Lord.